DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be once again joined by Vivian Dudrow, who's an editor for Ignatius Press and who, over the last 30 years, has written news articles, book reviews, and columns for various Catholic media, including the National Catholic Register and the Catholic San Francisco. With Vivian Dudrow, we go inside the pages of Fire of Love, a historical novel about St. John of the Cross, written by award-winning Spanish writer José Luis Olezola, who is known for his acclaimed works on great historical figures such as El Cid, Hernán Cortés, Bartolomeo de las Casas, and Patricio Escobar. We now begin our discussion with Vivian Dudrow. Welcome back, Vivian. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again. I'm so excited to talk to you about Fire of Love, a historical novel about St. John of the Cross. It's more than just a historical novel, isn't it? Yes, the author, Jose Luis Olitzola, must be, you know, himself a spiritual discerning man, uh, a deep man, to, to even want to write about St. John of the Cross. But also the way he writes about St. John of the Cross is very um, touching. Mm. Do we know very much about this particular author? Well, I wish I knew more. He is from Spain. Uh, he's, he's an older gentleman. He was a lawyer for 15 years before he started writing. He's been a very prolific writer, novels mostly, but he's also dabbled in film and so forth. He's well-beloved in Spain and has won numerous awards there. He's been awarded a big prize in France, and he's hugely popular in Latin America, which I didn't know until after we published the novel, and a woman was visiting Ignatius Press and saw it and was, oh, it's wonderful, you can't believe how popular he is in El Salvador and all over Latin America, and keep it up. And So that opened my eyes to you know, how influential a writer he is in the Spanish-speaking world. There is something to be said about authors who come from the lands that the characters are drawn from, and in particular when we're dealing with true-life historical figures like St. John of the Cross, because they can speak of the area, but also the history in in a way that those who are foreign-born probably can't comprehend as well. I totally agree with you. In fact, one reason why I liked this book so much immediately, as soon as I started reading the manuscript, was this very feeling of familiarity that the author clearly had with his subject. And so he not only understands the land, the people, the language, but also the culture. And, and, and that's just so important when, when you're writing, to write about what you really know. And I think uh, that's why the personality of St. John of the Cross leaps out at you from this book in a way that maybe is, you know, just uncomparable with with works written by Americans or or Europeans who are not Spanish. Mm. It it reminds me of the great work of Sigrid Unstead who was wonderful in her depiction of St. Catherine of Siena. No, she was not Italian, but she was a Dominican, an oblate of St. Dominic, essentially. And her ability to be able to enter into that spirituality brought Catherine a, a fullness to a biography. And in this particular book, 
though we may not know well the spirituality in particular of the author, you get the same kind of sense, don't you? Well, you get the sense that he really knows the 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 culture and the landscape and the people and the history of Spain, and that that's really key to understanding St. John of the Cross, in addition to knowing something about... He obviously knows very much about Teresa of Avila, the other reformer of the Carmelites. He's also written a historical novel about her, which I would like to track down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so he's clearly made a study of, of the Carmelite... Um, life and spirituality, whether he himself is attached in some way to a Carmel in Spain, or I don't know, but, but uh, he's certainly knowledgeable, and, and as I say, I think he's a spiritual man, because I don't think you could not be and be drawn, uh, to even be drawn to this subject. Mm. In this particular work, it, we do learn uh, much about St. John of the Cross. I would imagine that uh, along with St. Teresa of Avila and a number of other of the Carmelites, but as well as St. Ignatius of Loyola himself, a Spaniard, and St. John of Avila, who was just lifted up as a doctor of the church, that in many ways they are heroes in their country because of the rich Catholic tradition there. Yes, and there's also this beautiful interconnectedness you mentioned St. Ignatius of Loyola. Well, he is in their own time. The Jesuits are a brand-new order, and uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, as you mentioned, also from Spain. St. John of the Cross went to a Jesuit university to mm. study prior to becoming a priest. And so he and Teresa and St. Ignatius of Loyola, they're all part of this spirit of reform and renewal that's taking place in the church during the Reformation. And they're all interconnected. Even when Teresa reforms the Carmelites, one of their missions is to pray for the priests, like Father Campion, we talked about last Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. She knew about Campion and the suffering of the Jesuits in England. She knew about the suffering of the Jesuits in other Protestant countries or countries that were in the midst of all of this struggle, religious struggle. So they're all connected with each other in very deep and profound ways, and that's one of the exciting things. Once you start reading and you start picking up these threads and seeing these connections, you're like looking at this huge web of relationships, and uh, it's exciting. You learn a lot about history and the church and, and uh, all of these amazing people who make up uh, that very colorful <laughs> story. Mm-hmm. A very colorful story it is. Can you help those who are listening to appreciate the difference between a straight biography or an autobiography and historical novel? Well, you can never forget when you're reading a novel that it is a work of imagination. Mm -hmm. And so the author, rather than writing a straight biography, which would have to rely strictly on the facts and sources that are um, impersonal, unless, of course, you've got diaries and letters and so forth, which, which would give you something personal to go on. You know, if you're going to put in dialogue, conversation, people's feelings, you know, the author needs a little bit of creative license to do that. Uh, so that's why an author would choose to 
go the route of writing fiction as opposed to writing a straight biography in order to give play to his imagination and fill in the things that, you know, no one really knows for sure. But, but if you are a student of the person and you've read all the documents and you've, you've done all the research, it's not as though you're just making things up out of whole cloth. You know, your, your, your inspiration is drawing from the reality. And I think most historical novelists try very much to stick as close to the facts as they can. Otherwise, they would lose credibility uh, as, as an author. So it's not as though uh, they're trying to go off in, on tangents that are not relevant. No, they're trying to, though, round out the character in a way that would be impossible if you were limited by just, you know, this catalog of facts. So... Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't forget when you're reading a novel, you can't forget that you're reading a novel, you know, and same thing when you watch a movie, movies about historical figures like Gandhi or Queen Elizabeth or whatever, you can't ever forget that you're watching a movie. This is not history. This is interpretation of history. And you have to look at it more as a work of art than a source of, you know, factual information. The more you think about this, you realize that even when you pick up a history book, you know, supposedly all the facts, just the facts, ma'am, it's a work of interpretation because mm-hmm. who chose these facts? Why did he choose these and not others? What's left out? What's... And then you realize, gee whiz, every time I pick up the newspaper, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm reading something that's been selected, interpreted, and presented through the subjectivity of the author and editor and so on. So... When you start to think about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> just about everything you read is being filtered through the person doing the writing. And, uh, but there's a spectrum there, and certainly novels and fiction, you know, are further out on the, the, the imaginary than, than not. But, you know, some journalism today mm-hmm. <laughs> looks like imagination and fantasy to me. <laughs> well, and I think that it is can be said throughout the centuries that we've had media per se. It's it's who is publishing it in a very real way, whether it's a, a network on television or a, a, depending on what you're listening to on the radio. I know for myself, just as a quick side note, I mean, it's the, the difference between looking at the life of Jesus and watching it as a representation, say, on the History Channel, as opposed to watching it on EWTN. I mean, right. that's something I know I can trust, that right. it's going to present something. And to that end, I think that's why historical novels that are published by Ignatius Press are ones that I feel 100% comfortable in diving into. Uh, one that might be from another publisher, I may not necessarily have that same kind of confidence. Well, thank you for that confidence in Ignatius Press, and I certainly hope and pray we, we live up to it. No, you, you have. Know. Never let me down. <laughs> so, you know, and then when you're talking about meeting someone like Jesus, for example, you know, ultimately you need to go into the Gospels, you need to go into prayer and meet him for yourself. You know, so mm-hmm. these, and the same thing I would even say with the saints, in a way, the saints only make sense the more you know Jesus. And mm-hmm. so what rings true, so you pick up a historical novel, let's say, about St. John of the Cross, and you're asking yourself, well, what's true and what's not true? And one sort of uh, way to have your antenna up 
is to be always asking that question, does this ring true to what I know of Jesus? Like, a person who's in love with Jesus, is this what he would look like? Is this what he would do? Is this what he would say? What would Jesus do? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's how you... And that's how you start opening yourself to the real truth of the story, if you will. Does it move you to be more Christ-like? Does it move you to get to, God, to get to know God even more? Does it move you to be a better Christian? Does it inspire you? If it's doing that for you, then guess what? It's, the Holy Spirit is at work, and you, have, you can have confidence in the author that he too is being moved by the Holy Spirit. And, and so uh, if that process is starting to happen in your soul when you're reading a work of fiction, and particularly a work of fiction about a saint, then you know you're on the right track. And so that's why this just rings so true. But the other thing it does is it rings true in a very accessible way. The one thing I love about this author is that it's, the story is so personal. The story starts out, as you remember, with the courtship of his parents, mm-hmm. of St. John of the Cross's parents. It starts out not with his birth, but with the, the uh, relationship of his parents, how they met, how they fell in love, how they, how they um, in order for the sake of love, he was disinherited. Uh, John of the Cross's father was disinherited by his very wealthy and influential family. And you're already drawn into this, drama, this romance, this, and not in a smarmy way. You know, this is not, you know, the romances at the checkout counter at the grocery store. Yeah, I would say that's true. (laughs) This is, this is, this is a story of love. And, and you can see, and a love that allows itself to be purified through loss, through suffering, through voluntary renunciation for the sake of love and so on. So by the time you get to the birth of John of the Cross, you see how God prepared the ground by preparing his parents. How, and and mm-hmm. he grew up in a home that loved God most of all. And we already saw that exhibited in so many ways. So this sweep across generations, this understanding of how relationships, all the people all influence each other, even from parents to children... It's so personal. It's so, that's right. That's how real life is. And Mm -hmm. so it's not at all intimidating to get to know a saint in this way. And I must say, I found it so refreshing because John of the Cross always kind of intimidated me. How about you? Oh, yes, he has. You know, (laughs) and the fact that it really, I mean, here is a, a historical novel about not only one of the great saints and a mystical doctor of the church, but it, he's also one of the great poets. I mean, oh, his, yes. I mean, in the way he writes and his prose. So to take on the, I think that's a daunting, intimidating task for the person who's writing about him to to kind of even live up to the stature of. Uh, it'd be like somebody trying to write about Shakespeare. You're never going to live up to the expectation, and yet, I think this work is it honors Saint John of the Cross so beautifully. And one way it honors Saint John of the Cross is that the glory goes to God, for sure, Bec- mm-hmm. and that's how John of the Cross would have it, because when you find out how frail he was, he almost died as a baby, because his father died during his infancy, his mother, in her grief, lost her milk, mm-hmm. the baby, uh, John of the Cross nearly starved to death in mm-hmm. infancy, and, and um, 
and and there was a lot of uh, you know speculation that that's probably why he never grew uh, to full stature. He was small. He was frail. He was so gentle and um, in some ways even you know um, fastidious about certain things because he was so sensitive. Uh, and so you realize then what he suffered at the hands of his own order, as you know, he was kept a prisoner for nine months to try to break his will about reforming the order. They beat him every day. They nearly starved him. He was cramped in the cell that he could barely... I mean, if that didn't finish him off, his health anyway, and it did. I mean, he died a rather young man. You realize, so all of the sanctity, all of the beauty of his soul, all of the beautiful verses that he wrote, all of the wisdom that he acquired, it is supernatural because this frail, sensitive man it's a story of a soul giving himself over to the God, the God who loves him, and look what look what God does. It just blows you away. Yeah, and I think it, we really need to emphasize the fact that I mean he was one of the great reformers at a time in the church where it did need renewal. There were those like Saint Teresa. I keep wanting to call her Mother Teresa, but that's how they would have referred to her. She was well in the, the Car- in the Carmel. You know, once a mother, always a mother. Exactly. You always remain mother. So it's perfectly, I'm sure she's touched when you call her Mother Teresa. Yeah, because <laughs> but that's mean, confusing because people associate Mother Teresa with the other. In our times. Yeah. yeah, in our time, right. But for several hundred years there, she was the Mother Teresa. Right. It was Teresa of Avila. And uh, even our, our own now Mother Teresa of Calcutta looked to her and right. learned from her. But to get back to that, the. Uh, comment about the reform and the renewal, we need to remember that it is in a different land, in a different time, with a different government structure, and all kinds of things. So it wasn't just that the church was coming down on John of the Cross. That wasn't the case. The way the orders were set up in those days, that's why they were needed. They were in need of reform. Oh, this yes. Um, we, we get this, too, from the story of Teresa you know, she was put in the convent at, at, as a teenager by her father because she was so out of control. You know, mm-hmm. just boys and clothes and flirting and gallivanting about. And her father was worried that uh, she'd become a fallen woman mm-hmm. <laughs> if he didn't corral her somehow. So he put her in a convent until marriageable age. And it's amazing that, that, that this very spirited, beautiful obviously very intelligent, quick-witted sort of person, ended up falling in love with God in this convent because the convent itself, reflective of the time, was rather corrupt. The women, some of them had love affairs on the side. They, they had people coming and going. It was a hotbed of gossip and mm-hmm. a lot of aristocratic daughters with, with wealth and servants. And I mean, it would be unrecognizable probably as a house of, of prayer, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and and so you know that wasn't probably even the best environment to find God, but God she found, and then she got sick with malaria, and uh, she went through her own period of desolation, uh, and and for years didn't pray at all. Mm-hmm. She doesn't start reforming the Carmelites until she's fifty-one. Mm-hmm. She obviously had some sort of conversion-type experiences. She talks about seeing herself in hell. She talks about, you know, obviously her conscience 
uh, caught up with her, and she began to see that uh, that the that the order needed reform, and uh, and she did get some backing from from others who 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 agreed with her. Yes, set up these other houses. Then she met John of the Cross, who was in his twenties. So she's in her fifties. He's in his twenties. He's a recently ordained Carmelite, and um, he's about to enter the Carthusians because he's finding in his Carmel he can't pray enough. So mm-hmm. clearly these, these um, Carmelite monasteries, both for men and for women, had, had gone a little bit astray. And uh, so they get together and decide to, to hear the call of God for reform and, and start reforming. Well, you know, people really don't like to have their faults and foibles um, you know, brought to mind by people who are trying harder than you are mm-hmm. <laughs> to live a life of holiness. And so, of course, they got flack and opposition, and, and, uh, and that's what led to John of the Cross being imprisoned by his own Carmelite brothers. And, and ultimately, it was the Pope and the King, Philip II and, and Pope Gregory Thirteenth, I guess, who decided to divide the order into two parts. To, to stop this feud. This feud within the order went on for about three years, mm-hmm. and it really took outside intervention to come in and say, you know what, okay, you guys who want to live this more disciplined life, you just go over there, and you guys who don't want to be reformed, you just stay over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how, you know, it got, it got resolved. So there's the Kalst and the Discalst, which referred to having shoes or not. Because the uh, the the houses set up by Teresa and John were, you know, they would go unshod and they went back to a more austere life uh, for the purpose of freeing the person to really pray and contemplate God. It isn't because they loved pain and suffering. This is, uh, you know, uh, the caricature of the masochistic saint who likes to endure suffering for its own sake. No, it was, if you can't uh, remove these distractions of the world, it's very difficult to pray. And I think all of us who are living in the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) understand that reality. It can be difficult to pray. So that's what they did. Well, and it's very telling, too, that in this time, I, I think we need to remember that it's, we don't make the church holy. It's God who's in the center that makes it holy. And in encountering Christ, that's what they had to do and to, to help bring about universal holiness, at least in themselves and then in their order and then hopefully as a witness to the world. They needed to, in their experience, learn to encounter Christ and to know him and that's what they're leading us to. That's what the reform is, to, so that we can respond to that call to holiness to enter into our interiority as, in the path that they found and that they were leading people to. Right. They, we need both vocations, right? We, right. We, if everyone went to the monastery, that would be the end of the human race. We'd stop reproducing. But uh, by the same token, if we didn't have these people who uh, hear this call from Christ and give themselves to him completely and totally, um, and then live for us as a sign of the world to come, right, where there will Mm -hmm. be no marriage and begetting of children and so forth. So they're a sign. They're a sign of 
what the ultimate end and meaning of your life is, complete union with God. And so to the degree that some souls are called to live this in a radical way, that puts before the rest of us, oh, yes, that's right. Uh, can't forget what the real meaning of my life is. It's not making money and having stuff. Because guess what? All of that's temporary. All mm-hmm. that comes and goes. So that can't possibly be the meaning of my life, just accumulating a bunch of stuff. No, the meaning of my life, I have an immortal soul. What's that for? Where's that going? What? So those who can live this radical union with God uh, can be a sign for us and teach us a lot about prayer, uh, uh, can, can guide us along the way uh, to, to, uh, to know how to pray and why to pray and, and so forth. And the beautiful thing about John and Teresa, as I said before, they can be a little intimidating, and part of that's cultural, part of that is, 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 is you know, but at the root, of their whole understanding of prayer is that prayer is an act of love. Mm -hmm. Prayer is the soul yearning for God, moving toward God. It it isn't necessarily that you do this or you do that, or it isn't about the message. That's not what's important. You know, whether you read scripture or whether you, you know, pray the rosary or whether you, you know, how you get to that place that's not the important thing. The important thing is that you get to that place of being enveloped by the love of God and returning, receiving that love and giving that love. That's mm. what prayer is all about. Mm. And these are the two great doctors, along with others, but they're, they're standouts in their own right. Uh, of course, we're talking about St. John of the Cross and, and St. Mother Teresa of Avila. Right. You know? I just wish we had more time, but that's the the beauty of having this book. Is there anything that you would like to bring out or bring forward that people should look for when they're when they really dive into this beautiful historical novel? I would say, in a way, sort of set aside whatever you thought you already knew about John of the Cross, and just enter into the story of getting to know this 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 man, this very simple, sensitive soul burning with love for God, and just get to know him. And then, and then what you'll find, at least what happened to me after I read the book, now I went back to his poetry. I, I picked up a book on um, Carmelite prayer and so forth. You know, it sort of led to that search after the fact, you know. So in a way, you kind of want to just suspend all the things you think you already know and just enter into this particular storyteller's take on it, and you will find that you will want to now revisit maybe some of his works on prayer, or, or maybe you want to now read more about Teresa of Avila, I sure do, and just kind of let the, get, let the storyteller tell the story. Uh, beautiful advice, Vivian, and one more time, I, just, I, I hope that people, as you brought out earlier in our discussion, once you get to know the saint, even this aspect of him, just as you just said, from the, the vantage point of this one particular author, You'll take time now to sit down and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to allow you to be able to pray with St. John of the Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, he'll do like he's done for many centuries now, uh, lead you and point you right to the heart of it all, right to Jesus. I agree. Mm, beautiful. Vivian, thank you so much. You're so welcome. With Vivian Dudrow, we've gone inside the pages of Fire of Love, 
a historical novel about St. John of the Cross, written by Jose Luis Alezola. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press. Or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.